Hello and welcome to Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. The new dean of Georgia Tech's College of Sciences, Susan Lozier, has moved into her office in Tech Tower. That would be her landlocked office at the Midtown Atlanta campus. It's a nice office, but she has another unofficial office, and it's a bit farther away. She may have grown up in Indiana, but the ocean has been calling Lozier since her days in graduate school. Back then, she was studying chemical engineering, and she earned a bachelor's of science degree in it at Purdue University. And then when I found my way to graduate school, I was attracted to the Pacific Northwest and ended up um, going to University of Washington for my master's degree. Mm -hmm. Now, chemical engineering, the... um, particularly the part that I was studying, is all about fluid dynamics and and thermodynamics. And so I happened to be taking um, my courses my first year, taking a course in applied mathematics, studying partial differential equations, and the instructor, the professor that I had in that class, had a joint appointment in the School of Oceanography as well as School of Mathematics. And every example he was giving of these partial differential equations was applied um, to ocean physics or physical oceanography, ocean circulation. And so I thought, wow, I can study fluid dynamics in the ocean instead of fluid dynamics in a pipe. And so (laughs) I went and took a course in physical oceanography and just decided to, you know, finished up that master's and went right into the PhD program in physical oceanography. That set her on a different academic course, which has led to her new title as the Betsy Middleton and John Clark Sutherland Chair of the College of Sciences. But Susan Lozier is also a working scientist. She's the president-elect of one of the largest scientific organizations in the world. She's the lead investigator for a major international ocean research project that will take her back out on the water in 2020. Lozier is an award-winning physical oceanographer whose research examines ocean currents and how they're affected by climate change. You may not have known that there are different kinds of oceanography, chemical, biological, geological. Then there's physical, which is as it sounds. It involves the physics of the ocean. And the physics of the ocean uh, can run anywhere from people studying about waves at the shoreline all the way to what I do, which is study the very, very large-scale ocean circulations. So I'm interested in currents that move from Antarctica up to the northern North Atlantic, or what we would say the global ocean circulation. Those currents are a lot like the airstreams that wrap around the planet in the atmosphere. Just like in the atmosphere, evidence of humanity's effect on the planet can be found in its waters, underscoring the importance of Lozier's research. I found it very sobering myself when um, I realized that the anthropogenic carbon dioxide, the man-made carbon dioxide that we had put into the ocean since the industrial, or put into the air, uh, mm-hmm. atmosphere since the industrial revolution, I found it sobering that you can see signature of that at 4,000 meters depth. In the winter at high latitudes, the surface waters lose their heat to the atmosphere. They become very dense. They sink and they spread equatorward. They fill the deep ocean with these cold waters. And in time, those waters must upwell and return to those deep water formation sites. 
This is called the ocean overturning circulation, or popularly called the Glober conveyor belt. That is Susan Lozier from a 2016 lecture in Los Angeles. At the time, she was the Roni Rochelle Garcia Johnson Distinguished Professor of Ocean Sciences at Duke University, where she was on the faculty for 27 years. The named chair is the highest honor that Duke can bestow on a faculty member. Lozier isn't just fascinated by the rivers moving within the ocean, like the Gulf Stream. She also relishes the history of scientific efforts to study these deep waters. A story she likes to tell involves a historical figure known for his studies involving lightning. Oh, and for his work helping to create the United States. So Benjamin Franklin was the postmaster general of the colonies. And during that time, he noticed that the ships that were carrying the mail from the colonies back to England um, would get there much quicker, a um, matter of a couple of weeks quicker, than the ships that were returning from okay. England and bringing the mail back to the colonies. And it frustrated him because he knew that the sea captains were taking the same route. And he couldn't account for it by differences in weather or anything. And so he finally wrote to a cousin of his, Timothy Folger, who was a whaler from Nantucket, mm -hmm. and asked him if the whalers knew any reason to explain this. And then, of course, several weeks later, the letter comes back from his cousin, and his cousin said, yes, of course, everyone knows that you take advantage of the Gulf Stream, which is the river in the sea, mm -hmm. moving from the colonies to England, you know, that way, but on the way back, you must, you must avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so Benjamin Franklin made one of the first maps of the Gulf Stream as a postmaster general by just dipping wooden buckets over the side, um, and they put a little thermometer in. Huh. And because the Gulf Stream is are there exceptionally warm waters because they're coming up from the tropics. There's more history behind the discovery of the so-called Global Ocean Conveyor Belt. There was also someone, um, a Reverend Stephen Hales, over in England, who was very curious about what the deep ocean temperatures were. Mm -hmm. At that point, the deep ocean, this goes back, uh, so now this is the uh, mid-18th century, and everybody thought the deep ocean was void of life, dark, very, very, you know, cold. And so he asked um, a colleague of his who was a ship captain, um, um, of a slave trader moving from West Africa over to the colonies and asked him at one point to stop in the middle of the Atlantic and take measurements of the deep ocean uh, hmm. temperatures. And so um, this is a Captain Henry Ellis, and so on one of his transits he stopped in what they called the torrid zone, very mm -hmm. what we now call the tropics. Ellis's team figured out a way to use a wooden bucket to capture water at specific depths. He recorded the results in a letter back to Hales. And so in this uh, letter, he says that, well, we first found out that the water sitting at the surface is the same temperature as the air temperature, you know, as expected, which was 83 degrees Fahrenheit at the time. <laughs> and then he said, as we lowered that bucket further and further and pulled that water up, we found that the temperature decreased proportional to depth. So that's good. This is what we would expect. He said, until we got to a depth, and I think it's something like 600 or 700 fathoms, which is the unit of depth they used there. Mm -hmm. He said that the temperature we recorded was 53 degrees Fahrenheit, and it didn't matter how much further we went, the temperature was always 53 degrees Fahrenheit. So he's writing all, the, all this down, and he's also making some scientific interpretations because he's also saying, we think those waters were actually colder than 53 degrees Fahrenheit, but the fact is that the waters were, were, were cold and colder than they expected. 
So the, the story, the part of the story I like is at the very end, he says, we don't know if this is of any scientific uh, interest to you, um, but it really doesn't mean that much to us scientifically. But we're very happy to have found a source of cool water for our wines and baths in this hot climate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was really funny. I thought they're very practical people. So that letter went back to Reverend Stephen Hales. He sent it on to the Royal Society of London, and it sat there until the year 1800 when Count Rumford picked up this letter. He was so intrigued by this because he couldn't figure out how that deep ocean in uh, the equatorial regions or the torrid zones, how why cold waters would be there, right? Because the expectation was that if that you know at the surface all the heat from the solar yeah. radiation should have penetrated, those oh. waters should be warm, right? Yeah. Even in the winter, the water shouldn't be that cold. And so he pondered on this, and he um, then came up with the idea. He said, "I can think of no other supposition to account for the cold at depth in the torrid zone than that those deep waters were once at the surface at very high latitudes." And then he said, "If those deep waters at depth in the equator uh, torrid zone were once at the surface at the very high latitudes in the polar regions, then we must have some waters from the surface moving up there." Mm -hmm. And so he described in two sentences what we call today as our global ocean conveyor belt, or the meridional overturning circulation. The warm waters of the jet stream and the global conveyor belt, mixed with rising temperatures caused by climate change, for what could be a devastating combination for the environment. So there's two things there. One is, even without any circulation, the water warming in and of itself, you know, we know we've documented that, that's going to melt ice. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we know that the warmer, the water, the warm water has a more impact on the ice melt than actually the warm air. Okay. Right? So that water in contact, yeah. just when we think about when we jump in a pool that's um, 60 degrees Fahrenheit is a lot. Than the air. So, but then the circulation does bring, uh, can bring warmer waters and can make a difference as well. Okay. But the real why we're um, concerned about the overturning circulation is not just because of its impact. What I, I should back up a little bit and mm -hmm. say that even before we got into climate change for hundred or more years, we've known that this overturning circulation redistributes heat on our planet. And the best example of that is that in the North Atlantic, if you think about the weather or climate, I should say, um, over um, Great Britain and Northern uh, Europe, it's much more hospitable than the climate in comparable latitudes over in Labrador and the maritime provinces in, in Canada. And that's because of these warm waters that are coming back as part of the upper limb, the surface limb yeah. of the overturning. And then the westerlies um, moving from west to east across the North Atlantic pick up all that heat. And they deliver that heat and moisture yeah. to uh, Great Britain and um, so, British Isles in Northern Europe. The British Isles are very um, rainy uh, because of all that moisture that's picked up from the ocean. Is that um, the ocean conveyor belt mostly what you spend your time on with your research? Or? I do now. You know, I would say the past um, 10 years it's been a major focus of my work. Um, and I'll just 
tell you that in addition to redistributing heat, so we're interested in that if the, if the conveyor belt, um, this overturning circulation, slows... And why we think it might slow is because I mentioned to you earlier that during the winter, mm -hmm. the waters become very cold and they sink. Well, if we have winters that are increasingly warmer, yeah. right. And so that's always been, uh, that's the concern. And lots of climate mo models lead us in that direction. Is this a, a part of the ocean sciences story that you think isn't being focused on enough? Well, sea level rise is yeah. you know very easy for people to think about. It's easy for people to think about the fisheries impact. But I'll tell you, the, the real concern about this actually has to do with the increasing levels of carbon dioxide. And so I think the main untold story here is the ocean's role in the uptake of carbon. So since the Industrial Revolution, we have had um, a good measure of how much carbon dioxide we have emitted by the burning of fossil fuels. We meaning not you and I, <laughs> Renee, you and me, sure. but the... Yeah, are the global population, yeah. primarily the industrialized countries. Um, but starting in the 70s or 80s, um, scientists understood that the amount of carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere did not quite match up with, with the estimates of how much had been released. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's because the ocean and the terrestrial domain had been taking up some of that carbon. And so in the ocean now, the ocean has been uptaking about 30% of the carbon dioxide that's been emitted in the atmosphere. So that's good news for the atmosphere, right? But it's bad news for the ocean. Yeah. And a lot of that ocean, or a lot of that carbon dioxide, over half of it, is in the deep ocean because of this uh, conveyor belt, the overturning. Because at the surface... Um, the waters are exposed to the atmosphere, and whatever's in the atmosphere is going to get in the ocean surface. So when those surface waters go to depth, they carry that carbon dioxide with it. What is, what is that doing to ocean life? So that leads, yes, to ocean acidification. Okay. Right? And so that's, you know, now there's very um, early indications of ocean acidification. It's not at the point where it is... Alarming. We're starting to study it, but if this trend continues, it will, you know, will will have a strong impact. And so, what motivates me to study the overturning circulation is not just how will changes in the overturning impact um, the amount of heat that's delivered to different places, but if the overturning circulation slows, it means that the carbon dioxide um, will build up more in the atmosphere. So there's a lot of feedbacks there. So our as a physical oceanographer, I'm very interested in understanding what are the um, changes in the overturning circulation and what can we expect mm -hmm. uh, in the years ahead. And that's why we have this international observing system in the North Atlantic. That international observing system is called Overturning in the Subpolar North Atlantic Program, or OSNAP. Lozier has a ticket to ride with them in the summer of 2020. As we said earlier, Lozier is the international lead investigator for this six-nation effort to learn more about the global ocean conveyor belt. There's six countries that contributed this, but the United States has the largest uh, components funded by the National Science Foundation. And in the water right now, taking measurements are uh, instruments that are strung off the uh, shelf and slope of Labrador, off the Canadian okay. coast, and then all the way to the western coast of Greenland. Then starting on the east coast of Greenland, we have instruments going all the way over to the Scottish Shelf. Wow. And so each, 
every other summer. Um, we go and pull those instruments off, refurbish them, put them back in, and take all sorts of other measurements along the way. So we do have autonomous gliders that are involved in the program. Oh, okay. um, and so those are remotely operated and they get their instructions you know, via satellite. But they're going on their paths, taking measurements of temperature and salinity um, along the way. So okay. we have floats, current meters, measuring salinity, temperature, gliders. We use satellite data. So there's all sorts of ocean observations. That's not the only big scientific assignment awaiting Lozier in the next couple of years. She is set to take over as president of the American Geophysical Union in 2021. The AGU boasts more than 60,000 members from 130 plus countries. So anybody, Earth, Ocean, Atmosphere, Planetary Sciences is, okay. is a member of, um, of AGU. So it is a professional society in that it um, organizes meetings for all these different sciences. Scientists has publications, I think we have 26 different journals. Um, but also, yes, it is um, has a strong outreach component. Mm -hmm. Um, to let people know what Earth, ocean, planetary, you know, scientists, you know, are doing, um, and is involved, have makes you know, policy statements mm -hmm. as well, involved in educational programs, mentoring programs. So it really galvanizes the Earth and space science community, um, you know, to work with partners to really work toward a sustainable future. In addition to her research and administrative duties. Lozier wants to make sure there are enough women physical oceanographers following in her footsteps. I will say that um, I, at a certain point, realized that I owed a lot of uh, whatever success I had in my career, I owed um, a large fraction of that success to my mentors. Even starting in high school, had a fantastic you know, chemistry teacher mm -hmm. who just made a huge difference to, me, difference to me. In large part, I think that's why I ended up you know, in, in science. Um, but also um, going through um, an engineering program and also going through uh, the oceanography program, um, I looked around and realized that um, a number of my colleagues who were going through the same program um, didn't always make it through the program. Um, and it just, in large part, um, just from my personal experience, I realized that there was just the lack of support um, and um, just when I, after I had been recently tenured and I was, um, you know, just realized that it was important to me to increase the representation um, of women at that time I was really focused on mm -hmm. in science. Mm -hmm. And I knew from my own experience that um, mentoring and mentoring networks could make a big difference. Okay. Um, and so I went to the National Science Foundation. In fact, I got funding uh, from five different federal agencies, wrote proposals mm -hmm. to set up a mentoring program called Empower, which was mentoring physical oceanography women to increase retention. Um, and importantly, I told everybody that this wasn't a, uh, a women's issue, that it was a community issue. And I told the funding agencies that they had spent a lot of money um, on graduate education for women and that they would do well to invest some money in mentoring programs to retain them you know, in the field. I've been very proud of this program because it really has uh, changed the needle on the retention um, of women yeah. in that field. But I've also gone on and through AGU have established mentoring programs for PhD students who are interested in careers other than um, academia. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because oftentimes those students don't get the same support for the careers they're looking at than those who are interested in academia. I think it's vital to any science that we be open to ideas um, from, from all people. My thanks to Susan Lozier, Dean, and Betsy Middleton and John Clark Sutherland Chair of the College of Sciences. Lozier's School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences website is at Lozier, L-O-Z-I-E-R, dot E-A-S, dot dot E-D-U. Cyan Joe, a former research associate with the School of Psychology, composed our theme music. If you like Science Matters, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. This is Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. Thank you for listening.